This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you. Good late afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ruth Wishart. It's my very great pleasure this evening to be introducing our very special American guest to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Now, as you know, the guest that we have beside us today is a novelist whose writings have propounded the surely quite absurd idea that women have an abiding interest in sex and how to maximise their sexual pleasure. I mean, for heaven's sake. <laughs> she became an international bestseller on the back of Fear of Flying, in which our heroine splendidly tries out her theory that it's possible to be intimate with a complete stranger with no questions or regrets on either side. Now, because Edinburgh is one of the more douce capitals in the world, <laughs> I probably can't use the two-word phrase which encapsulates <laughs> this splendidly seductive activity. On the other hand, if I tell you that the narrator of her latest book, Fear of Dying, is endeavouring to spice up her sex life via an online dating agency called zipless.com, <laughs> And if you substitute a four-letter word for com, <laughs> I think we've got the general idea. But lest you think Fear of Dying is a one-topic novel, ladies and gentlemen, it should be noted that it deals with her customary wit and dark humour with issues as perennial as coming to terms with ageing, with losing your parents, and with coping with family tensions. It proves what we all know and very rarely admit, that just being an adult doesn't make you a grown-up. <laughs> She is, of course, a native New Yorker, any American this smart and sassy usually is, and she is, of course, something of a feminist icon. So please welcome the legendary Erica Young. extremely Freudian, and he wanted me to use his name, and it is Zhang, not Yang, because his family came originally from China. So my name is really Zhang, my writing name. At this moment, I hardly know what my name is, um, because I was married so many times. Um, legally, it's now Burroughs, and my husband, Ken Burroughs, my husband, 28 years. Amazing for such a bad risk as you, um, is here in beautiful Edinburgh with me. So, Fear of Dying is not a gloomy book about death. Fear of Dying is rather a book about growing older as a woman and growing older as a human being. And are you at 60 allowed to have sex? Or must you retreat into serene grandmotherliness? <laughs> well, the heroine of this book, Vanessa Wonderman, is an actress looking at her 60th birthday. And you know that actresses, when they look at their 60th birthday, 
are looking at a time they will no longer get work. So it's pretty dramatic. Vanessa Wonderman's best friend is Isadora Wing, a writer who was the star of Fear of Flying. And Isadora Wing has become wise and serene. And she is the Jiminy Cricket on Vanessa's shoulder. So whenever Vanessa is running into some terrible mistake, Isadora makes jokes about it and tries to convince her not to do it. But so in a way, the novel is also about female friendship and how much we rely on our best, best girlfriends. I wanted in, in some way to write about that in a book because it's such an important part of our lives as women. Anyway, I'm going to give you a teeny weeny or wee taste <laughs> and to give you a flavor of it. And then Ruth and I are going to have a conversation. And then we're going to invite the audience. And please think of very brief and hopefully funny questions. <laughs> Not speeches, but amusing, I hope, questions. Or serious, it's OK, too. So this is my introduction of Vanessa Wonderman. I used to love the power I had over men. Walking down the street, my mandolin-shaped ass swaying and swinging to their backward eyes. How strange that I only completely knew this power when it was gone or transferred to my daughter, all male eyes on her nubile 20-ish body, promising baby. I missed this power. It seemed that all the things that had come to replace it, marriage, maternity, the wisdom of the mature woman, ugh, I hate that phrase, weren't worth the candle. Ah, the candle. Standing up, burning for me, full of sound and fury, signifying everything. I know I should fade away like a good old girl and spare my daughter the embarrassments of my passions. But I can't any more than I can conveniently die. Life is passion, but now I know what passion costs. So it's pretty hard to be carefree anymore. But was I ever carefree? Was anyone? Wasn't love always an exploding cigar? Didn't Gypsy Rose Lee say, God is love? but get it in writing? And didn't Fanny Bryce say, love is like a card trick. Once you know how it works, it's no fun anymore. <laughs> Those old broads knew a thing or two. And did they give up? Never. I'm not going to tell you yet how old I am or how many times I've been married. I have decided not to get any older than 50. My husband and I read the obituaries together more often than we have sex. I'm only going to say that when all the troubles of my family of origin engulfed me, and I realized that my marriage could not save me, I reached a point where I was just unhinged enough to put the following ad on zipless.com, a sex site on the internet. This is the ad. Happily married woman with extra erotic energy seeks happily married man to share same. 
Come celebrate Eros one afternoon per week. Discretion guaranteed by playful, pretty, imaginative, witty woman. Send email and recent picture. New York area. Talk about a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. It was autumn in New York, season of mellow mists, Jewish holidays, and $5,000 plate benefits for chic diseases. A time of new beginnings, Yom Kippur, starting over Rosh Hashanah, and laying in acorns against a barren winter, Sukkot. When I placed the ad, I had thought of myself as a sophisticate, coolly interviewing lovers. But now I was suddenly overcome with panic. I began fantasizing about what sort of creeps, losers, retreads, extortionists, and homicidal maniacs such an ad would attract. And then I got so busy with calls from my ailing, ailing parents and pregnant daughter that I forgot all about it. A few minutes went by. Then suddenly the responses poured out of the internet like coins out of a slot machine. I was almost afraid to look. After a couple of beats, I couldn't resist. It was almost like hoping I had won the lottery. The first response showed a scanned Polaroid of an erect penis, <laughs> a tawny, uncircumcised specimen with a drop of dew winking at the tip. <laughs> Under the photo, on the white border, was scrawled, without Viagra. <laughs> the accompanying email was concise. I like your style, have always risen for assertive women. Send nude shot and measurements. <laughs> the next one began like this. Dear seeker, sometimes we think it's carnality we want when actually we long for Jesus. <laughs> we discover that if we open our hearts and let him in, all sorts of satisfaction undreamt of can be ours. Perhaps you think you are seeking Eros, but Thanatos is what you really seek. In Jesus, there is eternal life. He is the lover who never disappoints the friend who is loyal forever, it would be an honor to meet and counsel you. A telephone number was proffered, 1-800-JESUS-FOR-YOU. <laughs> I threw all the responses in the virtual garbage can, deleted them, and shut down the computer. I must have been insane to give an authentic email address. That was the end of it, I thought, deluding myself. Another bad idea aborted. I went about my wife life like an automaton. I had always been impulsive, and impulsive people know how to back away from their impulses. Sex was trouble at any age, but by 60, oops, I gave it away. It was a joke. Women were not allowed to have passion at 60. We were supposed to become grandmothers and retreat into serene sexlessness. Sex was for 20, 30, 40, even 50. Sex at 60 was an embarrassment. Even if you still looked good, you knew too much. 
you knew all the things that could go wrong, all the cons you could set yourself up for, all the dangers of playing with strangers. You knew discretion was a dream. And now my email was out there for all the crazy fishers and pishers. So well, that's where it starts. Yeah, um, and, and kind of finishes in much the same vein, really. Um, <laughs> but I think you'll have gathered, ladies and gentlemen, that Erica passed up on Jesus quite earlier on in this book, or rather, her uh, Vanessa Wonderman, the heroine of this book, passes up on Jesus and goes on to have a number of adventures. Let's just briefly revisit the number of times you've been married. You've been married four times, and I'm worrying, not worrying, no, I'm wondering. That's what I meant to say. I'm wondering if it takes four times to get it right. In my case, yes. I would hope it's not true for everyone because it is an awful lot of bother. <laughs> it's not just redoing the window treatments and the bookshelves. It's not just fighting over a beloved daughter, uh, which is so excruciating you can't believe it. And it's not just um, the legal difficulties, and, but the emotional issue that, you, that when you come to the end of a marriage that you never expected to be over, you feel like a terrible failure. And I think that does teach you a lot about what matters in life. Um, in my case, I needed, I needed to learn, and I learned a lot. <laughs> As I, as I said in the introduction, Erica, it's a, there's a lot in the book about um, women and their pursuit of sexual satisfaction, but there's also a great deal about dealing with the other issues which afflict women of, in that age group, in that demographic, not least um, dealing with, first of all, caring for ageing parents and, and then losing ageing parents. Um, tell me how much of your own losses were put into this book. Well, you know, this novel took me 10 years to write, and when you, which is a lot, even for me. Usually they take two, three, four, but rarely a decade. And what happened during that decade was that my parents began to fail. My daughter had three children, uh, got married and had three children, and my husband also nearly died. So one of, the, one of the things is there's writing and there's life, and one informs the other. And when life is happening, you're saying goodbye to your mother, you're saying hello to your grandson, you're saying goodbye to my, your father. I mean, my father was dying when my grandson was being born and in the same hospital. So life intrudes on your writing and inevitably enriches it, which does not mean that you literally write down your life. Not at all. People think you can just make a diary of your life. No, you have to transform these experiences to make them interesting. Um, and you have to make them more dramatic than they were in life. Um, Federico Fellini, the director, used to say, all of my movies are autobiographical, and none of my movies are autobiographical. And I think that's quite perfect, because 
Yes, you draw on your own feelings, but if you don't transform the events and make them dramatic, which often means amping them up and making them much more dramatic than they were in life, if you don't do that, you don't have a story and nobody will want to turn the page. So you draw on your own life, yes, but you change it, I hope, artistically, comically, dramatically. Though there are some passages in the book which will resonate with every woman who's been through them, and, and for that matter, in a different way, every man. And, and you write about um, losing your parents. And after your mother died, who was the, the last of your parents to die, after that you said you felt like an orphan. And I imagine there'll be a lot of people here today who know exactly what you mean, because you, you don't have to be seven years old to be an orphan. You can be an orphan at 50 and at 60. Truly, truly. I've heard so many of my friends use that phrase. You used that phrase when we were preparing this conversation. Um, I've had so many friends who said, my, my parents died this year, I'm an orphan. And I certainly felt that. And my mother was 101. She died about a week before her 101st birthday. And one of the odd things is, when your family is very long-lived, you think they'll never die. So it's a different kind of shock. You're suddenly, you're bereft, you're an orphan. And the, the interesting thing is they're with you all the time after they go. They talk to you all the time, they appear in your dreams, they give you advice, better advice than they ever gave you when they were <laughs> That's because you're rating the advice, of course. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> right, that's probably <laughs> true. Yes. Let me just take, touch on another of the, the constant themes in this book, which is um, a kind of ageist society, which we're familiar yes. with on both sides of the Atlantic. And one of the, um, one of the reviewers of this book said, um, this is a long overdue corrective in a cultural landscape that deifies youth and often ignores older women or relegates them to the role of spinsters or crones. Now, that's quite often true, I think, in the acting profession, which Vanessa Wonderman was in. But there are some examples like... Um, Meryl Streep and Christian St Scott Thomas and um, Helen Mirren, who are still flying the flag for women of a certain age and still getting quite meaty parts. Are they just the exceptions that prove the rule? They are. This is very new and perhaps has to do with our society, our aging society. I mean, I can name, well, you just named three, Helen Mirren, Meryl Streep. And this was very rare in the past, extremely rare. And the fact that it's becoming more possible is a triumph, I think. But you're suggesting it's because there are more people of that demographic around? No, I think really because we're starting to get over the ageism. We're just at the beginning of getting over it. But we are starting to get over it. And we're starting to realize that every stage of life is interesting. I mean, if you think of the novels of the past, mostly they ended with marriage. You think of Jane Austen's novels. Young woman gets married, novel ends at the marriage. Uh, you think of uh, Charlotte Bronte. Well, she died in childbirth at 38. Women, a couple of things. Women didn't live that long because childbirth was so dangerous. And women writers tended to write about romance and falling in love but not about the late, later stages yeah, of I a woman's life. My editor, the one who published Fear of Flying, said to me about 
40 years ago. There has never been a bestseller about a woman over 40. And I immediately said to her, then I will have to write it. And the truth of the matter is we need books about all the stages of life. Because every stage of life is a crisis and an overcoming of the crisis. And every stage of life is interesting. I don't know if anybody has read the books of Diana Athill, have you? Yeah. Wonderful memoirs written by a woman in her 90s. Some looking back on her life, some looking forward to what her life will hold. Yeah. This is all new, I think. Well, it is, but it also has to be said that Diana Athill enjoys not just good physical health, but she's intellectually still alive and gifted in her 90s, and you know, um, not, not everyone can look forward to that kind of senility. I think it's very important to do yoga and work out. Julie, I fear. And especially inverted postures that send blood to your head. Uh, no do you mean standing on your head? Yeah. Right. Nobody has ever proven that anything else works. Um, inverted postures, I believe in them. Do you know that's not something I thought we were going to discuss, but you know. <laughs> But hey, handstand, if, if handstand. I, you want to stay sharp up here? You're not going to give us a demo, I'm, no, because no. <laughs> I was a photographer, a photographer right there. Yeah. Um, but if we could back for a minute to the aging thing. I'm wondering if it's quite the same on either side of the Atlantic, because I noticed when I'm in the States that you've got TV anchors of, of women who are, you know, past 50, past 60, and, and one celebrated case past 70. And whereas over Barbara, here, Barbara, Barbara Walters, yeah, but yeah. over here we have um, TV female anchors that are immediately shunted off to reading the weather at three in the morning once yes. they're past 40. Yeah, which is terrible. I mean, we, we have to see women of all ages, I mean, and men of all ages. It, it is true that 60 Minutes had quite a number of aged men reading, reading stories. And I think that's a good thing. I mean. All the phases of life are interesting and worth talking about and writing about. We've got a lot of aged men. We just don't have a lot of aged women. Exactly. Women are obliged to look young and cute, even when they're not young and never were cute. <laughs> yes, it's problematical. Did, did you think when you were writing this book, I mean, how much of it did you think would resonate with, um, it seems to me it's a great book for a woman. Do you think it will resonate at all with men? What I've been discovering in lately is that a lot of men read my books and identify with the inner feelings of the characters. You know, when we're young, we think men and women are a different species. As we get older, we seem to join the same species, which I think is wonderful. It just takes some people longer than others, I guess. It takes people much longer than others. It takes men very long to join the human species in general. <laughs> well, they're more but of a work. Some of them do. And some of them are a work in progress. Yes. Yeah. No, no, I'm saying that as a, a woman who loves men and married one and all of that. Um, the other thing I notice about... Um, <laughs> the other thing I notice about the, the book, which is a very kind of New York thing that's not... It's getting more commonplace here, but less commonplace than it is in the States, is, is cosmetic surgery being almost a given for, for women. Well, now they have injectables. So it's less, you know, getting a facelift is less necessary than it once was. 
they're thinking up all kinds of things all the time. So, um, but I thought it was important for Vanessa to talk about her facelift because for an actress, it's de rigueur. You're not going to, I mean, has anybody seen Jane Fonda recently? Jane Fonda is 78 years old and she looks fabulous. And can, she, can, she, can she speak? She speaks very well, actually, and her acting has gotten better and better. I think that one of the reasons I made my heroine an actor is that all these issues are so much more intense for an actor. You have to look good sure. or you don't get a part. There's one last thing I want to ask you before we let the audience in. I mean, um, Isadora Wing, uh, the, the heroine of, of Fear of Flying, You've never quite got her out of your system because she becomes the friend and confidant of, of uh, Vanessa in this book. Um, did you feel obliged not to put her to rest? Did you want her back in, in, in Vanessa's life and in your life? Everybody wanted me to write another Isadora book. And I swear to God, I tried. I tried, and I tried, and I tried. But Isadora had a lot of baggage. She had, her story had been published in 44 different languages all over the world, people had identified with it, women, men, whatever, and she had so much baggage that it was really hard to write about her. So I wrote this whole book without Isadora. And then as I was doing the final, final draft, I thought, oh my god, she's the best friend. Because then it gives you, that, that way Vanessa has a Jiminy Cricket on her shoulder. And you can show the way women relate to each other in friendship. And our friendships are so amazing, I think. And I always wanted to put that in a novel. I think that is a really important strand. And, and it strikes me um, that many women understand, as you obviously do in spades, how important it is to build and keep friendships with other women. But many women, and sometimes it's the most glamorous women, um, don't realize almost that it's too late the value of female friendships as well as attracting men. Oh, I don't know where I would be without my female friendships. Um, and throughout my life I've had them. Very, very intense ones, but I've never before found a way to put them in a novel. And I think I will do more of that as time goes on. I, the other day I spoke to my best friend from high school, college and graduate school. And I promise she now lives in Cape Cod. She lived for a long time in Berkeley, um, California. She's a New Yorker originally. And I realized that these people are witnesses to your life. And you, you, wherever they live, go visit them. Because it's a way, I mean, like your siblings, they witnessed sure. your growth and development it's such a precious resource. And as you get older, they're the only people who knew what it was like to be 14 with you or 15 with you or That's whatever. That's right. Yeah. And it's so important. And I think that the female of the species is very blessed in that we have these intimacies with our women friends. And sometimes I feel very sad that men don't have them equally with their male friends because I think it sustains you through the changes of life, really. Um, some men do have a few good friends that they can confide in, but not to the extent that women have, because men don't like to show powerlessness. 
Yeah. Um, and so until they reach a certain age where they're not afraid to confide in another man, that they might feel powerless at times or fearful at times, it comes, but it comes for men later in life, I think. It probably makes it more difficult for them to deal with loss if they're not, allowed, not able to open themselves up to. I would love to see a world where men were able to have intimate friendships, the ones that sustain us. Well, it may be that we find somebody in the audience who, who's going to disagree with that proposition and has a man who's got lots of intimate male friends, but we're going to find out with the help of two microphones. Now, I'd really be obliged, first of all, if you'd, if you'd, if you'd listen to Erica's stricture, that this is about questions rather than life stories. Um, and, uh, and secondly, if you'd be kind enough to wait till the mic comes to you before you ask your question. So who's going to start us off? You've scared them. This, uh, start off with the, the lady in the red jacket here. Um, yes, well, all right, you go wherever you were going to go, and we'll take that lady first, and then we'll take the lady in the red jacket. Just, um, hi, that was wonderful, Erica, thank you. I'm trying to make this really brief, and it's about female friendship in the novel. When you introduced the friend, did you think about the difficulties of friendship, the struggles that good friends go through or was that good friend always kind of on side for the heroine on, on, on side was she always on side for the heroine or did the heroine struggle with her and you know you know <clears throat> that's a great question but that's really a different book i might write a book about the the, the different changes that friendships go through and in fact, I think it's a great idea. But this is not that book. Um, Vanessa is going through a crisis in her life, the crisis of getting older, of becoming a grandmother, of becoming orphaned. Um, and Isadora is helping her. But I can imagine a book about a female friendship where you can go through all the vicissitudes and the joys of a friendship. And I think, in fact, it's a great idea. And perhaps even the jealousies. And jealousies, and so on. Um, I think it's an important thing to write about. I, ha ha <coughs> I haven't yet written that book, but maybe I will. Would you like some water? <coughs> Thanks. If you just hold on a quick second. OK. Um, <coughs> I agree with you, Vanessa, uh, Vanessa Erica, um, about uh, you know the female friendship thing. Um, but it, it seemed when you were talking that you put friendship in either two females or two males camp. Would you ever see yourself analysing a, a male-female friendship as opposed to a romantic entanglement? Well, it's very interesting because I have a few male friends who are very dear to me and with whom I've gone through many phases of life. And I have not yet written about that. So thank you for the ideas. <laughs> so we're now on a three book deal here, yes. <laughs> yes, somebody there. Thank you. Uh, political leanings. Um, Donald Trump, would you give him one? <laughs> Donald Trump, would you consider having an intimate relationship with Donald <laughs> Now this was a silly question to ask because this may take 20 minutes to answer. 
think I think Donald Trump is a pathological liar, a clinical narcissist, and a complete fraud. I would not count him among either my friends or my lovers. I think he's an absurdity. And I think it reflects very badly on my country that he has gotten as far as he's gotten. In New York, we always used to laugh about him. I mean, one time a building was going up opposite our apartment building, and we used to call it the Donald Trump erection. <laughs> and we would sort of say it was probably the only one he ever had. So I think he's a complete hoax. He's not rich. He is fearful of ever getting one iota of criticism. He's a liar. He's, he's just the worst person I can imagine. He, he doesn't appeal to me either as a lover or a friend and never did. But as, after that objective summary of his, uh, <laughs> could we could we get? Because we all need to, we all need to know this. We all need to hear an American tell us that he's also unelectable. I think he is unelectable. But only think. I, you know, I don't want to hoax Hillary by saying he's unelectable because we have to really be careful. We've got to go to the polls. We've got to send money. We've got to make sure there's voter turnout. Americans are bad at that. So I don't want to seem too complacent, but I don't think he will be president. I feel pretty much the way Obama expressed. He, he is not suited to be president, and he is a joke. He's a reality star, a reality show star, who got famous for saying, you're fired. Is that what you want in a president? My God, the only thing that might give him help is that Hillary Clinton has been slandered for 30 years, um, when indeed the only thing she's ever been interested in are the rights of women and children. And because we live in the United States of amnesia, as Gore Dow called us, many people don't know that Hillary Clinton's passions throughout her life have been bettering the status of women, helping the status of children, and civil rights. Um, I think she's completely consistent in what she cares about, and I think she's very experienced and will make a great president. And can I just say, if the worst happens and Donald Trump gets into the White House, she'll be welcome back to Scotland any time. <laughs> We would love to come to Scotland. Yes, somebody there. Okay. We have women ministers here. We do. Yes. Can I ask a question? Uh, my question is a two-part question, mm -hmm. and yes, I'm from Texas. <laughs> 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 um, what would you say has been your favorite age, and how do you really feel today? That's a very Texas question. <laughs> I, I have to say that uh, 40 was great. Um, on my 40th birthday, I, I took a lover of 26 and kept him around for about four years until I discovered he had guns in the attic and then <laughs> threw him out. Um, Hell of a birthday present, though. Yeah. 
But I have to say, 40 was good, 50 was fabulous, 60 was okay, and 74, I feel less frightened and more passionate about my life and more grateful and blessed in my life than ever before. I say about being a grandmother, it's the best thing I never did. Um, I absolutely adore my grandchildren. They fascinate me. I'm, I think I'm writing better than I ever have because I'm not afraid of what the critics think. Fuck them if they can't take it. Right. <laughs> I don't know why I was worried about language in the introduction, but there you go. <laughs> yes, we've got it. We've got a, a second part to my question, and it's important to me for a personal reason. Is there sex? How, no, no, no. The question was, how old do you feel? How old because do I feel? My, when my grandmother was 90 years old, I realized that she only thought she was 30. <laughs> Could you give the mic now to the guy behind? The, yes, how old do I feel? I wouldn't put a number on it, but I don't think I've ever been happier in my life. And I don't think that, that reduces to numbers. And in fact, I think our whole society is sick on the subject of numbers, if you want to know the truth. You know, everybody's always being told that so and so many millions of people saw a movie. They're always the worst movies. So and so many millions of people saw this TV show. It's always a TV show you wouldn't want to watch. Um, what is this number thing? Um, I am happier in my life now because I have a wonderful marriage to a wonderful partner, which I never thought would happen to me, because I am more fearless in my writing than I've ever been. I am less afraid of criticism than I've ever been. And I enjoy my work and my life more than I ever have. I don't know what number you put on that, but it's pretty good. Sounds pretty good to me as well. <laughs> now we've got a very brave man going to speak. Hi, Erica. Uh, welcome to Edinburgh. Just wondering, what are your views on men in kilts? <laughs> <laughs> and how would Isadora Ring deal with the man in a kilt? I love men in kilts. <laughs> and I'm told they wear no underwear. Is that true? Scotsmen don't. They don't, I mean, I think it's great for a man to walk around in a quilt with no underwear. Uh, I have no problem with that. I think, you no, know, I think that ought to be knitted into the next book as well. Um, <laughs> somehow or other. Men in kilts. Men in kilts. I love men in kilts. I think they look great in kilts. Who's next? Here we go. Hi, Eric. I'm Theo. I'm here by default of accident. I was not meant to be here, but I'm here and thoroughly enjoyed the talk so far. How does your current husband compare to the 26-year 40 birthday present level? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. Comparisons are odious. <laughs> and there's no point in making a comparison like that. I mean, in 
unless you want unless you want to spend the rest of your life making comparisons. I can't say, it's a totally different thing, a different phase of life. You know, Colette said somewhere in one of her books, never die wondering. And I have lived my life according to that, never die wondering. So I feel happy that I will not die wondering. <laughs> but you can't compare lovers and you can't compare the ages of life because they're so different. What um, Vanessa, at the end of the book, does, with a little help from Isadora, does come to the realization is that not to confuse sexual pleasure and holistic satisfaction with your life. I think that we have, especially Americans, I don't know if it's true of, of Scots, but in America, we seem to be only interested in the old in-out, as Anthony Burgess called it. We don't see the full range of sex. The full range of sex is, is touch, talk, gaze, um, the whole spectrum of touch. And as long as men are obsessed with their erections, and women are obsessed with their erections, we will not have great sex. Sex is about touch. Sex is about communication. And it takes different forms at different times of your life. And it's not about online dating. It, it's not about online. I wanted to satirize online dating in this book because I thought it was so insane that people expected to find partners on the internet where everybody lies. You know, how on earth can you find? That said, my daughter met her very nice husband on J-Day. And they have a fabulous marriage and three beautiful children. And they make each other laugh. And they have a good time. So perhaps it is possible to find your perfect mate on the internet. But I thought for a comic novel, it was more fun to go into all the things that could go wrong, rather than endless bliss. And I don't think human beings are either entitled to endless bliss or ever find endless bliss. Human life is not about endless bliss. Human life is about solving problems, confronting issues, learning about yourself, and hopefully gaining a measure of serenity. It has to be said, I should just perhaps throw this in, that one of Vanessa's online dates I, his idea of a, a welcome was to open the hotel door holding out a rubber suit for, um, <laughs> for her to try on. She made an excuse and left in the best tradition of newspapers. Um, somebody, look, oh, right there. Is it working? Hello, Erica. Hi. Hi. Um, I read Fear of Flying as a teenager um, in rural Ireland in the mid-1980s, mid and I was really shocked, actually. It was wonderful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, I remember thinking at the time, goodness, you were very brave to put it out there. Did you feel brave at the time? I have to tell you that when I was writing Fear of Flying, I was in a state of utter terror. Um, I was convinced nobody would ever publish it. I was convinced it would never, in fact, my first publisher said, if we sell 5,000 copies, we're lucky. Um, because it was thought of as a very literary book by a woman poet. I had published two books of poetry, 
and had won many awards and was getting a PhD in 18th century English literature at Columbia. And people thought it was a very brainy book. Then my paperback editor brought it out saying, this book is a story of my life and I will print thousands of copies and it will go around the world. And she proved to be right. Nobody was more shocked than I that that happened. So, in fact, I think that the scareder you are when you're writing a book, the more likely it is that the book will be saying something important. A fear of writing usually is an indication that you're breaking barriers. I say that for all the young writers and old writers in the room. I bet the poetry lovers got a bit of a shock as well when they got <laughs> Who else, would, who else wants? Yes, in the front there, thank you. Hello, um, Hello. Er Erica, thank you very much for your lovely, lovely words. Your poetry inspired me to go to Survivor's Poetry in Doncaster and um, do exercises with your poetry on what it inspired in us. So it's really pleasing many years later to renew my acquaintance with your writing. Uh, I'd like to ask a very specific question. Recently I published, this, and this isn't a life story, it's, it's a sm small contextualization. Recently I published a small film on Facebook uh, where I believe I was playing with the ideas of women that are presented to men in society in particular, the signals they give, uh, the possible triggers, and uh, the roles that are expected uh, or aspired to on both sides. Now, I'd like to ask you what you said about men in terms of becoming human. <laughs> uh, it, they often speak about learned behaviors. To what extent is that just how men are, perhaps genetically? And to what extent is it how they're socialized, would you say, please? Thank you. Ah, the eternal question. Uh, are men born that way, or are they socialized that way? Um, I think it's probably both. But watching my two grandsons, who are eight and a half and 12 and a half, I do feel that men are born with certain tendencies the tendency of the older brother to throttle the younger brother. The tendency of the younger brother to throttle the older brother. I believe that men, when they start out in life, are very driven by testosterone and the desire for dominance. And fortunately, they grow up. And as they get older, they develop more empathy for other human beings, including their dread siblings, and I do think there are certain inborn traits, but also we can shape them to live more civilized lives. You know, like my, I'll hear my daughter screaming, don't strangle your brother. So it's a combination of nature and nurture. And philosophers have gone on about this for years, how much of one and how much of the other. But I do think that as we get older, we do become more empathic, men and women both. And the wonderful thing about getting older is having more empathy for other human beings. It does happen if you allow it to. <coughs> Let me, um, as we brought up the question of siblings, ask you about um, uh, 
Vanessa has, she's the middle of, of three sisters. You, I think, are also the middle I'm of the three. middle of three sisters, yeah. Are there special pressures in being the middle child as we are always learning? I think, um, I think I was more driven than my sisters, but I don't know whether that is always the trait of middle children. Sometimes the eldest is the most driven one. I was certainly driven to exceed and excel, and I, I see that as stimulated by a couple of things. One, I had a grandfather who adored me and a father who adored me, and who didn't, neither of them thought that being a woman was a bar to being talented or great. I also had a mother who was a brilliant painter and who never got where she wanted to go as a painter because she was a woman. And so my mother filled me with feminism and my grandfather and my father adored me and thought I could do no wrong. And that proves to be a nice combination. If you have a daughter and you can give her, or a granddaughter, and you can give her the sense that she can do anything, you're giving her a great, great gift. What differences do you see in the kind of feminism with which you were imbued by these experiences with your father and your grandfather and your mother? What differences do you see between then and now, where there seems to be a kind of backlash? I think actually feminism is triumphant now. I don't, <clears throat> I think that we've come through the second wave of feminism. All the young women I meet are feminists now. I don't meet any who say I'm not a feminist, but um, they take for granted that they can do whatever they need to do with their lives, and I think that's great. And I don't think that many women today have the, the problem of saying, oh, if I want to be a great writer or a great artist, I, I can't have children. Women seem to think they can do both. And society gives them the opportunity to do that in a way that was not possible for my mother's generation. Thank for you. my grandmother's generation. Right, who's next? I think feminism is triumphing, actually. Yes. Hello, I, I'm just picking, I've, I've read your book, I wish I really enjoyed, I'm dealing with my mother's dementia and, and mortality. I think you just mentioned your mother had been a painter, and I think in, the, in your book is that, I think the mother of the Vanessa's has been a painter and artist, and she's just not the same woman, and it's, those are the kind of things that are, I'm pondering as my mother changes, and I'm just wondering what you might have you to know, say about none that. Of my, none of my books are literal. They may pretend to be autobiographical, but I make up a lot of stuff. But the feelings, I think, are feelings I've felt. In that sense, autobiographical. And the, the things I'm obsessed with in my books are the things I was and am obsessed with. Can women really have an equal place in society? Can their work be taken seriously, as seriously as men's work is taken? We're going to have a small pause while we find the throat lozenges. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, can't find the throat lozenges, but whatever. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I think we're in a much better place for feminism and women than we ever were before. 
and it's a, it's a society in which women are freer to fulfill themselves than we have been for most of Western civilization. Not perfect yet. We're not completely there yet. We don't have parity in pay, parity in power. But the young women today want to get there. And I'm rooting for them all. I really am. And I envision feminism as mentoring other generations. Feminism means that older women help younger women and that we reach out to the women coming up. We don't compete with them, but we nurture them. For me, that's the essence of feminism. Don't you think, too, that um Men, certainly of my father's generation, didn't get much chance to get to know their, their kids or their families or anything else mm -hmm. because they were because of the hours they kept and because of what was expected of them in terms of being a breadwinner. Do you think that the fact that feminism is, in your words, becoming triumphant, liberates men to have more fulfilled without relationships? A doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt, it liberates men. I was reading something on the internet about uncoupling masculinity from money. And as long as men feel that they are failures unless they're breadwinners for their family, I mean, it's become much more common for both partners in a marriage to work and to contribute financially. And we're beginning to get used to that idea. In the United States, there are very few marriages that can be sustained on the earnings of one. And we're starting to get used to the idea that everybody puts in childcare, everybody puts in money, and that is ideal, really. More of a phenomenon here, I would guess, are, are, are stay-at-home husbands who decide that they want to do the, the not-to-three child-rearing. Listen, I think that if men can be liberated to be closer to their children, it can be nothing but good for society. Well, when you go out of here, Erica, and walk along Princess Street, you'll see a lot of young men with babies strapped papoose-like to their manly chests, and I think that's brilliant. If, if men can understand, I remember Henry Miller, who was a friend of mine, the author of Tropic of Cancer and many other books, he said that his second wife left the kids with him for a period of time, and he had to raise them because she went off, she was a college professor, and she had research to do and work to do. And he said, the hardest thing I ever did was raise those two little kids. And they were like three and four at the time. And he said, I came away with such profound respect for mothers and how they manage to educate little kids, save their lives six times a day, <laughs> also do other work. And he said, it changed me completely. And I think that if men got more involved in parenting, men would have more respect for women's lives and women would have more respect for men's lives. And I think it's nothing but a good development. Ladies and gentlemen, we're pretty well out of time now, but fortunately for, for all of us, Erica's not going away because she's going to be in the signing tent left and left again. And as soon as um, she's had a couple of throat lozenges, she'll be talking to you about um, fear of dying, which is out. Well, I, I just, if I just tell you, I don't know if you can see from there, but I was going to turn over a page every time there was a line in it that I wanted to, to take a quote from, and it's, there's so many pages turned down now that I've given up on that, but it's a, it's, a, it's a cracking read, and 
all of us who are fans of Erica Jong will enjoy it. So would you please join me in thanking her now. thank Ruth for her tart and sharp and wonderful sense of humor. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.